0: Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for joining HR Doctors. Uh, Extremely excited to have Lou here with me today. For those of you that are new to HR Doctors, uh, we are a webcast podcast dedicated to bridging the divide, solutions for better employer, employee, and job seeker connection. Again, Lou, thank you so much for being here with me today. Please tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Hey, hi. Thank you very much, Brent, for inviting me. Yeah, as I um, think about my career, I'm 76 now, and I started recruiting in 1978. But I actually worked for a living for 10 or 12 years before that. So I was running a manufacturing company when I was quite young. I uh, hated the group president. I was probably too young for the job. That immaterial. I thought I could do it and did it. But uh, it was a little bit uh, weird how I accomplished a lot. But when I got into recruiting, and I actually didn't do it as oh, I couldn't wait to become a recruiter. I was using these recruiters. They had a pretty interesting life. They were very, very successful so I talked to my wife about it and say, let's, let's tr- give it a try, give it a year or so. Uh, and I knew if it didn't work, I could find another job. But as soon as I got into recruiting, I realized hiring was broken. Right. And when you have a background in manufacturing and cost accounting and financial planning and budgeting and engineering, you realize you have to have a business process. And I realized taking those experiences into hiring, hey, I think hiring could be a business process. And eventually over the next 40 f- plus years, uh, that turned into what I call performance-based hiring, which is really a business process for hiring people on a consistent, scalable, logical basis that improves quality of hire and improves on-the-job satisfaction. So that's the short take of a 45-year story.
0: That's awesome. How, from a hiring perspective, have you seen it evolve
1: uh, through your career? Well, the reality is, its it is it hasn't evolved. The break, right. the break that I saw in 1978, bad jobs, bad interviewing, uh, uh, hiring people for superficial reasons, candidates accepting jobs for superficial reasons, people being dissatisfied. I mean, it's, you could describe the situation in 1978 and it's the same in 2023, yeah. uh, which is disappointing. Uh, now, on the other hand, that's not always the case. Uh, you find people who like their work, Define uh, are satisfied, get promoted, uh, enjoy what they're doing, they're competitively paid, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There is a set of conditions that actually work on a consistent basis. And that's what I advocate. But uh, most companies want to do it fast and quick rather than long and slow and properly. And I think that's where the real disconnect is, is there there is a way to hire people that's effective for the long term. But it's not the way that most companies Uh, implement the hiring methodology at their own organizations. Right. I mean, you know, the foundation of where
0: HR doctors came from was through our core values, which are helper, resourceful, driven, relentless, and sensible. And they're, they're live in my organization. And as of late, I've been producing content on what I call the three pillars of a successful hire. I feel on the front end, pillar one is your vision, your culture, your mission, your, your values. If you have those things in place, then building a comprehensive recruitment strategy, whether you use an external partner, whether you do it internally, I feel that front pillar unlocks your second pillar, which is your recruitment process and strategy. And then on the back end, pillar three would be your you know, post acceptance, your pre-boarding, your onboarding, coaching, performance management, development. Do you have a, a, a different framework or structure or other pieces that tie into that as well? Like what, what are, I guess, without hearing them before, what are your thoughts on my three pillars?
1: Well, let's say this. I don't know that those are the right three pillars or the ones that I would select. They're certainly sure. appropriate pillars. Uh, the problem that if you really look at it at the very micro level, the micro level of where a recruiter or a hiring manager is talking to a candidate, how many candidates actually hear all of that information or do they opt out too soon because somebody called them? Right. So you might have the right grand vision of how it should go in. But the real reality is it falls apart at the execution level. I mean, right. when you think about why do candidates opt out? Number one, they don't even opt in. You got a boring job posting, so even if you have a good candidate, they never hear that vision. Uh, or if you give some assessment test too soon, the candidate never gets uh, to explore it. Or the recruiter fumbles the opening conversation, the candidate opts out. Uh, for all these reasons, that you look at, why do candidates make bad decisions and why do companies make bad decisions? Because they're in a hurry. So implementing, let's assume that your three pillars are perfectly correct, and I don't want to dispute them. They're certainly Lots of different ways to frame them, and they sound logical. Sure. But the reality of it is, is that candidates are in a hurry, hiring managers are in a hurry, recruiters are in a hurry, companies are in a hurry, so they never have a chance to implement that vision properly. So that's where I kind of see it. Uh, and again, my background—I really was an engineer. My first job was working on a guidance system of a nuclear missile. Uh, huh. So you get this, you get into the specifics of how things actually work. Uh, so you can have a hey, we want to. Uh, accomplish some major task. But at every little step, that task can go awry. So you say, okay, how do I ensure that all the candidates I talk to are the right candidates are actually, uh, before they opt out, they actually hear the opportunity that presents itself. And when you think about it, I would say 95% of the time they don't. Uh, What's the money? So you call me up as a candidate. I'm a candidate, Brent. Hey, Lou, you interested in this job? Well, what's it pay? Uh, That's not enough. I'm not interested. So all of these issues that They never take place in the real world. So you got to say, okay, I got to have a micro level strategy that works one on one. And I also have the macro level strategy, which is your vision, that makes sense and supportive, and then put all those pieces together. That's not an easy task to accomplish. Yeah. Do Do you feel...
0: You know, as I shared at the onset, I feel like part of the reason why I created this is because of the disconnect between job seekers and businesses. The share of information has become more readily available, with social media, You know, there's businesses that are looking to hire, there seems like there's this constant demand and challenge of an inability to find the right people for their organizations. We're seeing layoffs happen in in numbers uh, that are highly more, more highly visible now than they ever have been before. And yet there's all these job seekers out there that are saying that they're having a hard time finding jobs. But like I said, we're still seeing this huge demand for people. Do you feel that it's any different now than it was before? Like, are you still seeing the same disconnect in the market, or do you feel it's different or greater now than it was when you when you first got into the space?
1: No, it's exactly the same. Exactly what no. we said, you, this this could have been. We could be having this conversation. It wouldn't have been on Zoom, of course, in 1978, and you would have said exactly the same thing. Right. You would have said exactly the same thing. Uh, how do com- companies find candidates? How do candidates find jobs? Um, It used to be many, many years ago, a very high touch process and not necessarily a positive high touch. It was it was hard to change jobs in the 80s and 90s before the job board. It was hard. You had to they had to find a job posting. You looked in the newspaper. You had to send a a letter with your resume and somebody had to open a letter and read the resume and see if it fit. And then, I mean, it was it was cumbersome. Uh, Now you you get aggravated, you look on the internet and you apply, and then you keep on pressing apply, 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 and nobody responds. Well, because it's, number one, it's easy, but we've cheapened work. Uh, So we've got a different set of problems today than we might have had 30, 40 years ago. But the same thing is, how do you match a candidate uh, to a specific job? How does a candidate find a job? Is it based on skills? Is it based on academics? Is it based on interpersonal relationships? All those kinds of things make this a pretty tough problem. Um, So I was saying, how do you blend technology and high touch together to make the process work? We have achieved it in methodological performance-based hiring. The idea is we spend more time with fewer people. uh, We pre-qualify people. But nonetheless, it's not an insignificant challenge to overcome. And I think if you just try to use technology and artificial intelligence to do it at the scale level, it becomes impersonal and becomes frustrating from both sides. And then the yeah. focus, the, the win is uh, hiring for tomorrow. Hey, I want to get somebody started next week. Uh, and the candidates think, I got to get another job by next week. So it's every short term thinking rather than, OK, I need to put myself on a better career trajectory. That takes a little bit more time and a little bit more logic, uh, but it's a different process.
0: Right. Uh, one of the things uh, we previously discussed is, I guess, through the evolution of uh, of your career, uh, and now you've got what you call a win win hiring. Is is that kind of the all encompassing? If you could go to a business and say this is how you do it, that kind of covers it, or is that more of a siloed part of the process?
1: No, it's definitely a loud part of the process, but it's not it's not the end game. I mean, it's conceptually what it basically means. So let's assume you were a candidate of mine, Brent. And I would say, Brent, I'd like to talk to you about a career opportunity. And you say, yeah, I'm happy to chat. I said, but uh, the logic here is Brent, this will take more time. If I decide to present you to my client, a hiring manager for a job, um, there's a high probability you will get an offer. I only send three or four candidates. All my candidates are seen. So there's a 25, 35% chance you will get an offer. But before you get an offer, I'm going to say something to you. Let's assume it's a month from now and you actually get an offer, but you could think about it today is I'm going to say, forget the money. Do you really want this job. And I call, and I call this process, Brent, win-win hiring, meaning you're hiring for the anniversary date, the first year anniversary date, not the start date, right. where you see this job as a good career move and you're excited a year from now after you start and the hiring manager says, I'm glad I hired this candidate. Right. That is hard to achieve. Uh, But by asking you to say, forget the money, why do you want the job? I want you to think about the work itself, the company itself, the team itself, the hiring manager, uh, the work-life balance. Obviously, the compensation has got to be competitive, but you've got to think about all of these things as you decide to compare offers and accept one. And maybe all of those things, components, Brent, are your three pillars, but nonetheless, that's what it is. That takes a lot of work. Yeah. By doing it, achieving it, candidates will be more satisfied. They'll performance will be higher. Their satisfaction will be higher. Their turnover will be less. The results will be greater. You'll raise the talent bar. You'll change whom you hire and how you hire. Um, That's a nice, compelling mission and a goal. uh, But hey, you still got the micro level. You still got to do all these activities to pull that off. So conceptually, that's the right thing. So your question of win win hiring, is this all encompassing? Yeah, that's kind of the goal. But the reality is, it's a lot of work at the detail level. You got to put all those pieces together.
0: When you when you work with a business, uh, I'm assuming on the front end, the goal is to discover their value proposition within the win-win. Is is that something where you're finding more and more companies have these things dialed in and have really readily no. available answers? Not still still weak in a lot of these areas.
1: It, again, it's the problem is you can't generalize that win-win hiring. If you're hiring a cost accounting for a manufacturing company, that's different for a sales rep selling, solution selling in the same company. Uh, That's different than the marketing who's launching the product the software developer, building the interfaces and the customer service centers. I mean, so each job requires some understanding of what are those components to achieve a win-win hiring. For a cost accountant, it might be... uh, attention to detail to really save money for the marketing person. It could be developing good competitive advertising Uh, for the sales rep. It could be conducting detailed solution, selling analysis. So you look at, you can't just take this generic approach and say, apply it to every single job. No, the hiring manager has to do it. And if the hiring manager doesn't want to do it, and the company doesn't require the hiring manager to do it, it won't happen. And that's really where the whole thing falls apart. Conceptually win-win hiring makes logical sense, it is done, Uh, With good hiring managers do it, but when you try to scale it at the company level, it always, I don't want to say it always, it generally falls apart. It's hard to implement that methodology, despite all the logic, all the research that said, this is the way you have to do it. And they said, I got to hire somebody. I don't care if they're the best person. I'll just uh, hire somebody who can do it and I'll deal with it. And that's really uh, the short term becomes more important in the long term. We'll
0: we'll share uh, the the graphic and the article that you've got for win win hiring. You've got them numbered from one to six. Is that in any particular order, or is that an order of of importance? How do you? I guess ultimately, my question would be if we're we're trying to, you know, help bridge that divider gap. Is there something you've seen or that you've you've shared with businesses to say, you know, work on these things, change these things first. This is step one to ultimately. Yeah, I think
1: yeah. Well, so just to give people a sense when you show it, when I throw a candidate, I said there are six criteria that you should look at as a candidate yeah. when you're accepting an offer or comparing jobs. One of them is the compensation. But I put that aside. I said, as long as it's competitive, let's forget that. Right. The other one is the content of the work itself. Is this work you really want to do? Because if you don't want to do it, it doesn't matter how much we pay you. Another step, and I'll call it step two, is the people you do it with and the hiring manager. If you and a hiring manager don't get along, it isn't gonna happen. I don't care if you love the work if you got, and that's why I left corporate America. I I mean, I love what I was doing. I did not want to leave, but I couldn't deal with this person. Uh, And I decided, and I dealt with him for two years. I just couldn't, you know, it was, um, and he was my mentor. I mean, he actually promoted me to these other jobs. And I said, I don't want you anymore. I don't need you. Um, But that, so that's step two. Step three is the company itself. Is this a place where you can really launch your career? Step four is uh, the work-life balance and then all the other issues that go around in job satisfaction and motivation. Uh, And if you can't put all those pieces together in some logical format, you're not going to be able to make the right decision. So that's I don't know the order is right. What I do tell candidates is here's here's the criteria. What's important to you? And what I, unfortunately, I see most candidates highlight the compensation. I said, no, I mean, uh, and that's why candidates make long-term decisions using short-term information. Right. And I, and people say, what's the comp? Oh, the comp's real important to me. So then I just ask them back. I say, Brent, let's assume you're a candidate. You say, no, I don't, I'm only interested in the comp. I said, okay, Brent, think about the best job you ever had. Best job you ever had. Where you really enjoyed going in. Was it the compensation that drove that satisfaction or something else? Right. And it's always something else. And I say, well, yeah. and that's so you got to prioritize those things yourself and understand it. This is this is where it's a very personal process and people's personalities change. Let's assume you just had to raise the family. You just bought a household. Well, compensation might be the most important, even though it doesn't drive your c- satisfaction. On the other hand, if your comp is fair and you've got these other things that are more important, you want to grow your career. Well, that becomes more important. But the job itself might be a great job, but if the manager doesn't fit your style, well, that's going to be a problem. If the manager and the job make sense, but the company culture is going through some really tough financial changes and they're cutting your, your budget in half, that makes, again, it could be the great job in the world, but other things can affect your job satisfaction and your performance. And so there's a lot of variables here that uh, need to be taken into account at every single situation. And they're hard to take into account. I don't want to minimize it, they're not insignificant to deal with. Yeah, Yeah. I I mean, I guess in
0: looking at this uh, in that intake of a company where they've either had growth and they go, we need to hire a new person or whether it's been turnover, probably a great place to start before you go with your go-to-market strategy, whether it's independently or with an external resource is digging into these six pillars and ultimately identifying what that value proposition is going to look like to somebody. So you can highlight these things and try to draw the best people in possible.
1: Well, that's true, but when it all comes down to it, if I had to think about now, when I had a full search firm, something this is in the '90s, let's say 80 to '90s, uh, we actually did a study. Uh, we and during that period of time, there was anywhere between three to seven of us. Uh, we made it. I'm going to say over a 20 year period, at least a thousand placements, at least a thousand, right. uh, uh, roughly. Um, but we actually then did a study of. We actually started giving as a contingency search firm, and this was in early, I want to say mid-80s, uh, we started giving a one-year guarantee, unheard of in contingency. We then became a retained search firm, and it's pretty standard. But as a contingency, we started giving a one-year guarantee. And I was reluctant to do that. But we did it, and we then started tracking how many people over a 10-year period, uh, and that's what we had statistics for 10 years, so it was five to six, 700 people. I'm not positive exactly the number. How many actually left and we had to fulfill that guarantee, which either replaced the person or give the money back. And that was the deal. Um, 7%. So it seemed like it was 75 out of 800. It was was a low number. It was less than 10%. But when we started digging in, because we wanted to understand why, it turned out it was most of those, half of them were because the clash between the hiring manager and the candidate. The styles didn't mesh. So then of all the variables we had, And I'm going to say of the seven, eight hundred people, 60 to 70 percent got promoted or got a bigger job. So we and maybe 20, 25 percent or, you know, they were good people, but not great people. And seven or eight percent under, you know, got fired or left in the first year. That's pretty good statistics. Um, But then it became of all the variables. The one is the hiring manager. Now, if you're hiring somebody, a cost, uh, you know, the head, the controller might be a different hiring manager, marketing manager, uh, the division vice president. I mean, all these things, the hiring manager is the key variable in all of this. You could have a great company culture, but the hiring manager is a jerk. It's over. I like where I worked. I like the company culture. I didn't like my hiring manager as a group president. This is, you know, 1975, 76, 77, when I worked with a guy. Um Yet I liked the job. I was getting promoted almost every six months to a year. I had other opportunities outside of him uh, and I didn't want to take him. I didn't want to be, because I knew he would taint everything I did. So um, so when you think about it, those interpersonal relationships really are hard to define and yet they're the ones that drive success and satisfaction. Yeah.
0: Looking back, was it a personality clash between the two of you or was it more this individual was having the same issue with other people. And it was ultimately oh, either was blind. Ger- yes, yeah, so yeah. it was a blind I mean, spot or weakness I call within it, the organization. I call
1: it managerial fit. And I had another client. Uh, and I'm going to say this about 15 years ago. And it was a company, president of a company. I don't know how he heard about us, but regardless. Uh, he said, Lou, I've just introduced all my team to this Blanchard's. Um, I don't exactly know what he called it, but whatever it was. Uh, there was a book on how to, uh, how, leaders have to adapt their style to their subordinates and he said can you build that into your hiring training program so i read the book i studied it i actually really spent a long time trying to figure it out and i said you know i don't think a manager can adapt his or her style to the employee that's hard to do right Um, so i created what i call managerial fit is to say no managers got to hire people that fit their style so this goes back to your question the manager, the guy that I worked for, the group president, was a micromanager. Micro, everything had to be done his way, and he was a he was a na- he was not a nice person. He would be in your face. He wasn't even a nice micromanager. He was a nasty. Said, "Now nah, this is stupid. You made." I mean, and he would do this in front of a group. I quit. So on the other extreme, I was a hands off. Hey, you just tell me what to do, and if I don't get it, fire me. I, I was so independent. So our styles clashed completely. Right. Um, um, uh, so when he would come in and say, no, do it this way, I said, no, that's a stupid way of doing it. You don't know what you're talking about. No, I do it my way. I and mean, then, no, I'm not going to do it your way. Fire me. And they, so it really became this clash of styles. Uh, most managers, so when I go interview a manager for an assignment, I wonder, most good managers are coaches and delegators. They can coach people. They can train people. Uh, or they can coach and delegate the work. Some of them are saying, "No, just be able to get it done." I don't want to give you any training. I just want you to get the results. And I can certainly work with that kind of manager. Uh, there's certain managers who are coaches and trainers. Some of them are supervisors. Some of them are micromanagers. So you can see the scale of how involved that manager is with that person's work. And you got to map that. Some of them are more flexible. Some of them aren't more flexible. But that's important. And and subordinates, on the other hand, some subordinates need a lot of support and training. They need a lot of feedback. Others don't want any feedback. So you kind of have to map um, that manager's style of how he or she delegates and supports the person to the, what does that uh, subordinate need in terms of support and delegation? How much do they want and what do they actually need? So you really got to focus on that. That's the variable that affects all of these things, most importantly, and affects on-the-job performance. Right. Did you find that answer, but it was an important one. Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) And it like, do you still
0: feel, I mean, there's been an evolution. There's way more information that's being shared. There's tons of resources available. There's endless amounts of communication about, you know, let's say a great salesperson doesn't make a great sales manager and you, I mean, I know you've kind of alluded to this, but you still feel like—is that the number one biggest blind spot, or is it all these things together? Like, I guess ultimately, if I, you know, if, if through your experience, is—is is there that this this thing where you can say that you know any business that that's out here watching this or paying attention? Like, is there this critical piece or this one main,
1: like pivotal linchpin that's like focus on this and it unlocks the, the rest well, of the I would potential? I two things. I think, I don't know that there's two, I think the first thing I would say, so let me kind of give you my first search assignment to give you a, an idea on it. First a search assignment was in 1978, first week in January, 1978. Prior to that, I was running a company with 300 people, you know, the last day of uh, 1977. My first assignment was for a plant manager in the automotive industry. Uh, The company president was looking for a plant man. I had given the six months notice. so So I had search assignments already planned out. It wasn't that I started cold on day one. It was, I had a lot of things going on, but I knew I had one search assignment as soon as I started. So I went out to the manufacturing facility, gave me a laundry list of skills, experience, competencies, engineering background, has to have this, 10 years in this experience, understands this kind of manufacturing process. And I looked at it and I said, Mike, this is not a job description. You've got a list of skills, experience, and academics. This is a person description. Let's put the person description in the jo- parking lot. Tell me about the job. What do you really want the person to do? Right. And we walked through the plant and it was turn around the plant. So I was comfortable in that job. We walked through the plant an hour later. We said, okay, here's what we have to do. New processes, new layout, new supply chain, understand this procurement, how to set up uh, whatever it was. It was, how do you? what do you need to do to this plant to make it work? I have never used the job description that defines skills and experiences. So in the fact, this afternoon, I'm looking for an agricultural trade group. I'm helping the uh, board of directors hire a CEO. And the list, now this is a month and a half ago, they gave me the list. I'm reviewing the final list today. Um, It was, what do you want the person to do? They have a list that has to have 15 years experience, has to understand agriculture, has to have this kind of degree. I said, now what do you want the person to do? What do you have to accomplish? This is a half a million dollar job and I just said, what do you have? And they, the whole board is saying, wow, never heard that anybody do that. But we got a major search firm to focus on what the person needs to do. So that's number one. If you don't know the work the person needs to do, success is problematic. Number two is, can that person work with the hiring manager? I mean, you can say a person has to work with the culture. The hiring manager defines the culture. you got a crappy culture and a great hiring manager, you'll be successful. Uh, You got a crummy hiring manager and a great culture person will be unsuccessful. I mean, it's so the, the dominant thing is the hiring manager. So if I had to say two things, what are the linchpin? Define the work as a series of performance objectives and make sure the hiring manager and the candidate and the new hire can work collaboratively and together. You get those two things, you got a high probability of success.
0: Yeah, and if we go back to your first one there, so assuming that's something you see often, why do you think they get hung up on trying to identify like who that perfect person is as opposed to like this this sometimes magical person as opposed to this is the job that needs to get done and trying to hire based on getting it done versus who we think is going to be the person that can do it?
1: Well, let me kind of give you another story. So this was about 20 years ago now. and it was when the dot com and the internet was booming. So let's say it was late '90s, early 2000. And I had I get a call from the chairman of a board whom I had worked with. He was a client of mine, and he says, "Lou, we're looking for a VP of marketing for one of my big ventures. Uh, and the president and the CEO isn't. He's looking for the wrong guy. Would you just go in and have him uh, develop your performance-based job description?" So I go in and meet this president, and he. He didn't want me there. He said, I don't want to. You don't know what you're doing. Have you ever worked in this internet business? You've ever placed the VP marketing? And I was a recruiter and I wanted the search assignment. But I, and it would have been in today's dollars, three, four hundred. So it's a big job. It sure. wasn't that much then, but it was approximately it was half that, but irrespective. Um, but I was only going in there to define the work. I never wasn't. And the, the guy who brought me in just wanted me to have the president rethink how to think about work says, I need somebody who's got a master's degree from a top school, uh, a master's in engineering and in business. Have you ever hired people like that? I need someone with five to eight years experience doing this exact thing. And he, and I need someone from only the top schools, only the, here's Stanford, Caltech, or, uh, Bur- I mean, it was, he was really giving me this list of world-class person. Uh, and I just, and he didn't want me in the room. Right? He was really, discounting me so he could talk to the board and say, I talked to Adler, but he's no good and I don't want him. Uh, so I just said, Lee, let me just ask you one question. And this is after a half hour of being berated. So, I mean, this was not insignificant. Sure. Uh, and I was taking a lot of heat, uh, but I'm from the Bronx. And so I didn't care. In manufacturing, you take the seat all the time. Uh, so I said, Lee, let's assume you hire a great person, whether it's me or anybody, you hire a great person. It's a year from now. And the person is a remarkable person. And you want to give this person an extra bonus and an extra share, maybe even promote him into some bigger role. What would this person have accomplished over the course of the year where you could confidently tell the board, this is an outstanding person? He just stoned silence. He said, what a phenomenal question. You finally asked a good question. It was actually the first question I asked. Sure. Uh, But he said, create a three-year product roadmap that details exactly how to leverage our engineering capability, overlay that with what the market and the technology and the internet interspace space is, and with all infrastructure internet that space is, and how we can maximize our product development without adding a lot of uh, R&D funds, but maximize our critical technical skills and building a detailed product roadmap that gives us a chance to grow 2X over the next three years. I said, Lee, if I could find someone who could do that work, and I will not compromise on that work, could do that work, but didn't have exactly the experience you wanted, didn't have exactly the engineering background you wanted. Obviously, they have to have some of that background. I couldn't do the work. Would you at least see the person? He said, absolutely. Right. He hired somebody for me four weeks later who could do that work. Right. So the idea is to convert this mindset of what skills, experience and personality looks like into an outcome, and then just say to them, would you at least see somebody who can, who's accomplished that? And I tell my clients, I will not compromise on their ability to do the work. You just give me the, don't get hung up on the skills and experience. If they can't do the work and aren't motivated, fine, don't hire them. But don't worry about everything else. Worry about, can this person do that work that you need done? And that right. was the game changer. That was the game changer.
0: Right. And then how would you then take that and tie in your next piece of going, you know, if they were reporting into this person or to somebody else going, how do I then ensure that the person that I find is going to
1: mesh and that the styles are going to well, get online? It's a great question. Certainly, the, I've got to be a good interviewer. Yeah. So if I'm presenting a candidate and my question to the candidate would be, I mean, obviously, there's more to it than that. I just. Hey, Brent, if you can, hey, Brent, you know, you got to put a product, the biggest accomplishment over the years, you got to get a product roadmap in the next six months that really lays out this internet and what's going on and how you're going to tap into these resources to build a very complicated product roadmap. Have you ever accomplished anything like that? Walk me through it. So what I do is I take that performance objective convert it to a question and I'll spend a half hour to an hour with you on walking you through that usually 15 to 20 minutes to understand what you've accomplished that's most related to that What uh, so about even
0: good. what about even before the the candidate where you're talking, saying again, if I look at an organization where they've said, "Got this idea, we're going to build this new thing," or we're whatever it's going to be, and the idea is coming top down, but this person's not going to report to the CEO; they're going to report to a division manager somewhere, and either your HR in that organization or whoever it is that's in charge of hiring. You know, if the idea is coming from somewhere, but the person's going to report to a different manager and you, you know, you've shared that like that connection, that management style, that fit is going to be a linchpin. That's going to result in someone being successful because if they're working for a jerk or someone who's a poor manager, like, was that something you would dig into and, and oh, go course, through yeah. an interview with that individual to dig well, into? let's like, say this,
1: if I'm always dealing with a hiring manager. Right. So I'm always dealing. So the question, that exact question of is, here's what you need to get done, Brent. Uh, walk me through it, I'd also say, Brent, tell me what was the role the hiring manager played in that? What was the role that... uh, So, And I ask this question for every one of the accomplishments. Tell me about your biggest accomplishment, biggest team accomplishment, biggest disaccomplishment. And I'm always, when I start asking about major accomplishments, I'm trying to understand the environment or the context of that environment or the circumstances. How'd you get that job? What was your hiring manager like? Walk me through the role that that hiring manager played in uh, guiding you and delegating and managing along. How often did you spend time with him? What was your hiring manager, your best hiring manager? What was your worst hiring manager? So you start asking about major accomplishments and the environment behind that, particularly the relationship with the hiring manager. You start understanding the role the hiring manager had in that person's success. And or that person's failure. Tell me your biggest failure. What was what was the cause of that? Not enough resources. The hiring manager. What do you think of this hiring manager? So I'm always focusing on that relationship and those questions on the hiring manager, and trying to understand the context of that person's successes and that person's failures, and trying to map that to the new situation. If that's your answer, I believe that yeah. was your question. I can't yeah. be positive, but it sounded like it.
0: <laughs> you you placed. You said more than a thousand people with hundreds of companies. You're not me
1: personally, my firm, I, the organization. I, well, I probably placed 500. I mean, I did it for 30, full-time recruiter for 30 years. So you, yeah. you don't have to make a lot. I mean, if 20 to 25 placements a year, get up that number. So I have five or 600, I've certainly placed and I still work at it, but I don't do recruiting anymore. Of, of. I'm going to ask two questions,
0: one on the company and one on the candidate side, but on the company side of the companies that you worked with, where you were just like, these guys get it. Like they're doing something right. Was there a common thread, a common theme or or anything that you would highlight that you'd say this makes it so much easier for everybody if they're doing this one piece right?
1: Yep, it's the president. And I tell the president and that's when I have a chance to work with. So that's why I, it's it's best when I can work with what I call mid-sized companies, companies that have say 300 to 500 people, um, maybe a thousand, because then I can deal with the CEO. I can deal with the ceo i say there's two things you have to do to implement performance-based hiring number one is do not open a requisition without unless all the performance objectives are clearly defined i call that a performance-based job description that's yeah. number one just don't approve any recs number two is don't hire anybody unless the team has agreed officially in a formal debriefing session completed a talent scorecard which assesses that candidate's ability to do that work in relationship to the fit and They're both pretty sophisticated, but if they do that, they said they'll figure out how to do it. Uh, So, yes, the successes I've had is where that president of the company has totally committed to that methodology and has implemented that process throughout the company. And they have been very, very successful. But once you get to a certain size and the president starts getting moved away and you get somebody in H.R., the thing starts falling apart because every H.R. person believes that their process is the best their process right. is the best oh, i got to do behavioral interview i got to do this i got to do loan i got to do competency models and none of that stuff works but they believe that's the way to do it so then they break the process down and think they're approving it but they're actually weakening it so yeah um it's a set of conditions where i can get in there and and personally control it it does work and then when the president controls it, it does work and we do have companies right now where the vphr says we're going to do this uh, but they're few and far between because they get smattered. Oh, I got to use this new ATS system. I got to use this new technology. Oh, I got to buy this. So president wants to just been to this business meeting and he heard about this and we're going to try this. And then all of a sudden it starts falling apart. So um, it's the way it is, but maybe that's why I'm cynical. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on
0: the candidate side, I'm assuming a lot of your approach was the direct sourcing, headhunting, things of that nature, but I'm sure you also placed applicants and posted jobs and would see people coming in outside of someone's deep connection to the ability to meet the performance objectives. Was there a commonality or anything that you saw of the top tiered and I'd, I'd prefer to talk to the job seeker because I think it's very different if you're reaching out to someone who's currently employed and you're approaching them. But of the individual who's out there, who's either at a high level and doing the right things or the person who's struggling, is there anything that you would speak to that uh, you've seen those those high functioning or the best applicants put themselves forward
1: that resulted in your ability to work with them? So let me, I don't know. Um, that's a pretty complicated question. but. My general general approach is I only talk to semi-finalists. A semi-finalist is someone who will be seen by the hiring manager. Right. Meaning they can do that work that's defined in the work. Number two, they have what I call the achiever pattern. The achiever pattern clearly indicates that they're in the top quartile of their peer group. They've been recognized for something. They gave a speech. They've been uh, spoke at some event. There's some honor, some award. So I can show that to the hiring manager. Hiring manager, I believe you should see this candidate. Here's why. They've accomplished the work and they have clearly been recognized for accomplishing being successful at it. My manager says, of course, I'll talk to the person. I didn't even say hire. I said, just talk to the person on the phone. The other part is uh, when you think about the whole process, I got to get someone who's going to accept an offer and it won't be the biggest money. Never had the biggest money. And if I do, it's luck. Uh, But it's got to be competitive money and it's got to be the best career move. Then I know I can close it. So I look for candidates as a semifinalist who would see this job as a career move. It could be that their company is flattening out. uh, The company is going through some troubles and I can move them from industry A to industry B, which is better. I could give them a better title. I could put them on a faster growth path. But I look for those kinds of things. So I don't talk to a lot of people. I do not. I talk to semifinalists only. And a lot of them are referrals, not all of them, but a lot of them are referrals. Uh, and I know how to play the game and I looked at LinkedIn and I can get, I can get referrals for any, almost any job in 24 to 48 hours who are excellent. I mean, right. aside from the fact, I got a pretty deep network, but I can build a new network. But I only talk to semifinalists or people who can give me a semifinalist. Uh, I don't have time to talk to people who are fully skills qualified, who are desperate. Uh, so the other part is, is that these people are hard to close they will be discriminating. The other one is they do not make superficial decisions. And I know that they'll get a counteroffer. I know they'll get another offer. Even if they're not looking, uh, as soon as I start talking to them, they will look. I got this one job, let me see if I can find something else. Uh, So I'm thinking about that all the time. So is that an ideal candidate that I look at? No, I don't know. I'm looking for someone who uh, is likely to take an offer and likely to be seen. uh, And I know that there's going to be some competition. So I've got to persist. I got to make sure that they don't opt out for stupid reasons. And I've got to be in a position to to close and without the biggest budget. So I close with the biggest best job. And if I don't get there, fine. I, and I tell candidates, if this is not the best job, it might not be the best money, but if it's not the best job, don't take it. And I'm certainly fine with that. But my obligation to you is to get you all the information uh, to to make the right career decision. Awesome. You spoke in
0: uh, the onset of our chat about discussing the win-win hiring with the job seeker, with the person you've identified, the six categories, and how it often would still revert back to the dollars. Did you feel when you were talking to these, um, you know, these top tiered candidates that you reached out, these, um, I forget what you called it, not the finish line, what'd you call it? How did you describe or, them? The anniversary ah, sorry. date or? No, no, no. The, just the, they, they were kind of at the end of the process. They'd already kind of been screened. And anyways, from, from their like personal vision and mission of understanding what's important to them and work and managers, would this still be something you would often have to pull out of them? Or did a lot of them already have the answers? They were, they were high level, they were high achievers and like, again, did a lot of them already know what that looked like, but just maybe hearing the question or was it again, was it something you really would have frequently have to dig in with them and help them realize what their
1: vision was and that they didn't really know it? I think it's a combination of both. Yeah, I, there are some great people who aren't great interviewers. There are great people who aren't really thinking about it. So I do remember one story and this was probably, and this was after I only been a recruiter for three or four years, maybe five years at the time. And I was a contingency recruiter, and I know you know what a contingency recruiter is. But I mean, I didn't get paid unless the candidate accepted the offer and started. Right. Uh, and I remember on a Monday, a candidate told me he was going to take an offer, and this was in the electronics industry, and it was a pretty good job. I think I think it was plant manager again, but I'm not positive. Um, and he told me on a Monday he was going to take my offer. And this would have been about a 200k offer in today's dollars. So you're talking about a 60000 thousand dollar fee. Now, obviously, it wasn't that fee then, but it was in today's dollars. It was still sixty, seventy thousand. Pure. Sure. Either on Monday I had it. If he didn't take it, I didn't get. It was zero. So being contingency, if you're rolling the dice a lot. But he told me on Monday, "I'm taking your offer." He calls me on Wednesday and says, "I'm not taking your offer." So basically, I lost sixty thousand dollars in 48 hours. And I was devastated, I mean, it was pretty crushing. Uh, and I said, what happened since we talked on Monday? He said, well, I got another offer yesterday uh, and it was for more money and closer to home uh, and a better title. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about it. And I mean, I, I was kind of blown away. So it took me five or 10 minutes just to calm down to even ask the question because I just lost sixty, seventy thousand right. uh, $70,000, it was pretty devastating. Um, And I don't know what made me say it, but as he described it, I said, you know, John, you're making a strategic decision using tactical information. And I just spouted that out just because out of pure for. He said, what do you mean? I said, everything you've said about why you're taking this other job is what you get on the start date. Yes, it's a manufacturing industry. It's closer to home. It's, we're talking three to four percent more money, and it's definitely a VP operations versus a plant manager. But think about long term. In two to three, you're in an old. That's an old line manufacturing company. In two to three years, you're not going to be any better than you are on the start date. Right. No better. You will not be worth a single dime more than you are on the day you start. On the other hand, you're going into this other job. I know the title is a little bit less. Uh, the, t- the money is a little bit less. The drives a little bit more but you're going into the state of the art electronic assembly facility making displays. And this was when all computer displays, laptop displays, displays in airports, were will go through dramatic change from these old line video tubes to flat screens. I mean, this was really that evident. You're gonna be in the state of the art market in a new technology. The parent company is investing in this and you've decided to walk away from that. You've just made a long-term strategic decision using short-term tactical information. And I think you're making a career mistake. Uh, and that's all I said. I didn't know if I, and I was desperate. I wanted to make that placement. I was desperate. I knew that I had him to think about it. I didn't know that I'd get him to change his mind. Calls me the next morning and says, Lou, boy, I'm glad you gave me that speech. I'm going to accept your offer. So he he took my offer. I thought, thank God. I was ready to hug the guy over the phone, but neither here nor there. Uh, so it was a big fee. It was probably my biggest fee for that year. Uh, so it was very important. Uh, But more importantly, he calls me nine months later. He says, Lou, best decision I ever made. I've just been made VP operations for all the Western region of the United States for manufacturing facilities in Silicon Valley and Southern California. And we've got I'm leading a new initiative to build two major facilities in China. That was when China was really just launching. He said it was the most important career decision. Don't make long term decisions using short term data. So I think. And that's what happens. This guy was a very, very, very capable guy. But when you're in, he didn't like the job he had. He was frustrated. So when you're trying to avoid pain, your goal is to get out of that pain and you make short-term decisions. And that's what everybody, I don't like my job. I don't like my boss. I don't like this. Everybody makes short-term decisions and that dominates what they do. Then once they get on the job, oh, why did I do that? It was, you know, two to three months in the honeymoon period. It was great. But then I'm back to the same old, same old. And I think that's the hard, how do you make the? how do you force people to make long-term decisions? And it's hard to make long-term decisions. And even Tony Robbins talks about that. Most people make decisions to avoid pain, not to right. increase gain. So you kind of think of, and that's what happens in hiring. You change jobs because you're frustrated about something, but then you don't do the due diligence to do it right. You always think it's going to be a great career move, but you don't know. And I force that knowing. I mean, literally I am, and me as a recruiter, when I give a one-year guarantee, I have to be right. It's a business. Right. It's not personal. It's I don't care if you uh, – I just don't want to do work over again or get the money back. So to me, I, I'm i religious about it because it's a business decision. What I can't understand is people take it casually. They change jobs like it's, hey eh, I'll change jobs. I don't do like this. I'll change that. And I think the internet has caused uh, that attitude of let's cheapen work. And companies have supported it, so I don't want to – it's a, it's a problem on both sides, and I see yeah. it. I don't see it getting better. That's the sad part.
0: Wow, so so insightful. I've got maybe two or three more questions for you. I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah,
1: make it two. Make it to the two most important ones.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, you have your hiring formula for success.
1: Could you touch on that briefly for me? Yeah, well, that's it. it really, kind of goes back to yeah. Let me just kind of say the hiring formula for success is. The ability to do the work in relationship to fit drives motivation, and because motivation is so important, it's squared. Ability, technical skills, hard skills, soft skills, organizational skills, teamwork. But the fit factors are pretty much what we talked about. What do you create to create a win-win hiring outcome? If you're not motivated to do the work, it doesn't matter how competent you are. If you don't like the hiring manager, it doesn't matter how competent or motivated you are. You'll be demotivated. Uh, so a lot of the fit factors have to do with the context of the job, the pace of the organization, the resources, the hiring manager, intrinsic motivation. That's all the stuff in the one-one hiring outcome. And right. unfortunately, too, when you look at the hiring formula for success, too many companies look at just hard technical skills, not the non-technical skills, not technical organizational skills, project management, reliability, character, teamwork. But all of those have to go in the context of the fit factors. And I think so the hiring form of success pretty much says it all. The ability to do the work in relationship to fit drives motivation. And because motivation is so important, it's squared, that equals results. And bottom line, if you don't know the job, you can't fill it out. If you don't know the fit factors, you can't figure it out. Uh, But if you define skills, experience, and competencies, you'll get it wrong. It's problematic if the fit's going to work. And even if competency is going to work, I mean we've all—I mean we've all been taking jobs we're competent to. Do, we just don't want to do it for one reason or another. It's beyond you. You don't like the manager. The work is—you uh, got a lot of work to do, but you don't get the resources to do it. The time frame is there. I mean, uh, it sounds simple to put that little formula together. It's hard to implement, but powerful when you do implement it.
0: Awesome. Uh, last would then be on ChatGPT huge adoption the largest early adoption of of i believe of any new technology that has been introduced to the market what what are you seeing with chat and how it's changing things in the uh, in the talent acquisition space
1: well i think i mean and it is powerful and i and i'm blown away by it but the problem is is that mo- and i see all these articles i mean if so yes an article, 10 ways to use chat for hiring all they're trying to do is use this bad hiring of mixing and matching people to jobs based on skills, and they're trying to be that more efficient. So being more efficient isn't necessarily the benefit of it. It's being different to hire people. How do I take people who have a different mix of skills and experience, a job that's defined differently and mix and match the right people in the right job and look at the complexity of the fit factors. It can, and we're actually working on, how do you implement that hiring formula success properly to achieve more win-win hiring outcomes? That's a different way of thinking about it, not just trying to be more efficient, doing the same thing you're doing today, but being different and doing it better to raise quality of hire, not just to fill jobs more quickly. And I think that's really the, the possibility that chat GBT offers to everybody. And that's what we're doing in our
0: training. Amazing. Uh, Lou, how can people learn more about performance based hiring through you
1: guys? Well, the best way is just join our book club. I mean, it's free. You go to hirewithyourhead.com. That's the name of the book, Hire With Your Head. I'd love you to buy the book. I make a buck fifty every time you buy one, uh, but Wiley is happy, so they'll publish another one. Uh, But then we also, every month, we we meet and we discuss some of the chapters in the book. But to me, that would be the best way. Just go to hirewithyourhead.com, join our book club, come to the event, um, and we talk about these issues real time in real practical situation. How do you define a job? How do you do this? How do you find candidates? How do you network? whatever it may be, how do you close the deal? I mean, all those things we talk about, we just go through different chapters in a book and different topics. So that would be the best way to get in touch and stay in touch.
0: Perfect. We'll make sure that it's linked in uh, any of the posts that come out through the, uh, through the chat. Lou, thanks so much. It's been fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much, Brent, for
1: having me. Good luck and hope this works for you.